And we are in the third week of our message mini-series on the end times. And this week we're going to be looking at one of the most controversial doctrines in all of Christianity. The, the reason it's so controversial is because it's so fantastic. And the word fantastic doesn't mean super great, terrific. The word fantastic actually means it's practically unbelievable. It's, in, it's incredible. It's mind-blowing. And we're going to be talking today about the rapture. And if you don't know what the rapture is, don't worry. We're going to unpack it and explain it as we go through our Bible study this morning. But let me preface it by saying this. Chuck Missler, one of my favorite Bible teachers, says this about the rapture. I love this quote. He says, it's the most preposterous doctrine in all of Christianity. The only thing it's got going for it is that it's true. And so what is the rapture? Well, the the rapture is the term given to a massive global event described in Scripture which will result in every believer being removed from the earth at the same time. In an instant, every believer will disappear from the face of the earth at a certain point in the future. And now you know why most churches don't talk about this a whole lot, because it's, it's genuinely fantastic. It's mind-blowing. There's no real way to, to subtly segue or ramp into this enormous concept that is the rapture. But I want to let you know this. It's worth taking a moment at this point to just pause and remember that this is God we're talking about. There's a great saying that says, if you can wrap your mind around Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you can wrap your mind around Genesis 1-1, you won't have a problem with the rest of the book. And the idea is if you can remember that God created the universe out of nothing from outside our space-time dimension, if, if, if you can believe that, wrap your head around that, then anything else is really possible because it gives you the right perspective on God. And so we're going to explain this, but I thought it would be helpful to give you the big picture so you can track with me as we study to know where we're going, what all this is pointing to. But before I begin that as well, I want to address one main myth about the rapture, even within Christianity. And the myth is this. Some of you might have heard this. Some of you might hear it when you talk with friends about this message this week. Someone will say, do you know the word rapture doesn't even actually appear in the Bible anywhere? And I need to clear this up for you. You know, up, up until the 300s, the Bible really existed in multiple parts, in, in multiple languages, um, some in Greek, some in Aramaic, and possibly some in really strong Hebrew. Uh, and the decision was wisely made to translate all of the text into a single common language to create a reference document for all future documents. And when they did this, they wanted to use something that's called a dead language. A dead language is simply a language that is no longer changing, no longer evolving. And often the only way to have that happen is to use a language that is no longer being used by any society as their primary dialect. So for example, if any of us went back 500 years to England, we would not understand practically anything anybody was saying. They, they did really, really odd stuff. I, my, my parents-in-law have one page from a Bible that's like 500 years old. They did weird things. I hope I'm getting it right. But like instead of using the letters TH, they'd use the letter F. Like what? But that's what was going on with the language. And we could go back at certain points in history to English-speaking societies and we'd barely understand what's going on. You can go to parts of the South and the United States right now, and you won't understand what they're telling you. So they wanted to choose a dead language. They wanted to choose a dead language, and the language that they chose was Latin. 
And so they converted the entire text into one flowing, continuous, single document in Latin. And so in Greek, when they translated the New Testament, which is primarily Greek, there is this word harpazo, harpazo. And the word harpazo simply means caught up. And harpazo, translated into Latin, is the word raptus, from where we get the word rapture. So to be clear, the word rapture is absolutely in the Bible, and it's in one of our core texts today in the, in the epistle, the book of 1 Thessalonians. So when the rapture takes place, it is hugely important. We're going to dig into God's word today, but I want to give you the big picture overview first because it's going to help things make a lot more sense as we go. So here's the big picture. At a certain point, the rapture is going to happen. Every believer is going to disappear from the face of the earth. Shortly after that is going to begin what's known as the seven-year tribulation. Seven-year tribulation is a period of time where a lot of the things you've heard about the end times take place. You have the rise of the Antichrist, one world government, single currency, mark of the beast, all the stuff that's used to make terrible Christian movies. Most of that stuff happens during the seven-year tribulation, God's wrath being poured out on the earth. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, that, the end of that seven years is going to be marked by what's known as the second coming of Christ. We're going to discover that the rapture is the church. The church is the global church of believers, not just this church, in case you're thinking this is getting really weird. The church, the global church, uppercase C, capital C. We're going to discover that the rapture is the church leaving the earth to be with Jesus, while the second coming of Christ is the church returning to the earth with Jesus at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The second coming of Christ is going to begin what's known as the millennial kingdom. It's a thousand literal years when Jesus is going to reign on the earth with his saints for a thousand literal years. God, Jesus, is actually going to be in charge of the earth. He's going to rule the earth. It's going to be what many of us long for right now. And the millennial kingdom, that thousand years, is followed by Satan's final rebellion and war against God. It's the war to end all wars where Satan will be finally defeated and every person will be judged at what's called the great white throne judgment in Scripture. And we'll spend eternity with Jesus. Now, now I understand that going through that timeline might have left you with hundreds of questions. Because this is a mini-series, we don't have time to go into everything. We do, however have time to get into some detail about the first event that is most pertinent to us, and that is the rapture. And that's what we're going to study today. The purpose of the timeline is to just help you understand where in that series of events the rapture happens. It happens first, and we're going to find out today why that's so important. You know, last week we took a a quick look at some of the overview of the book of Revelation, and I want to point out something so, so important about this, so important about this. You know, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that contains its own special blessing. The only book in all of Scripture. Revelation 1-3 says this. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Its own special blessing. And I want to encourage you to study the book of Revelation for yourself. If you've missed last week's message, you can find it on our website. And and on the outline for that study, I share a link to a great 
brilliant verse-by-verse study all the way through the book of Revelation because you probably need some type of companion, some good teaching to go with the book of Revelation as you read it. You can download it for free. But I also want to recommend the book called The Final Act by Chuck Smith. It's called The Final Act by Chuck Smith, and it's a very easily readable book that's an overview of end times events across all of Scripture. Because there's this special blessing, I want to encourage you Study the book of Revelation for yourself. There's a special blessing in that, God says. Most, most churches don't want to touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole. I grew up in the church, and I can tell you honestly, it never came up. The only time this ever came up was when the youth pastor wanted to scare some kids into getting saved, and he was like, what are you going to be doing when Jesus comes back? <gasps> are you going to be in an R-rated movie? You know, <laughs> Oh my gosh, you know, I, I had no idea I was risking my salvation by choosing this particular movie. That's the only time the end times really ever came up for me growing up in the church. But here's the thing. It's called the book of Revelation. The word literally means that something has been revealed. If God wanted to keep everything in there a secret, it would be the book of Concealation. But it's called the book of Revelation. And so the idea that it's hard to understand is somewhat of a myth. And I want to suggest to you that it's a myth created by Satan to keep people from reading the book, from receiving the blessing. Because, you know, it wouldn't make much sense if God said, I've given you this book. I want you to read it. It contains incredible things, and I've attached a special blessing to it. But here's the thing. You're never going to understand it. You're never going to understand it. That, would, that wouldn't seem to make that much sense if God were to do that. And so I want to encourage you, study this book. Last week we learned that the book of Revelation has a roadmap to it, and it's a chronological narrative of things that have been, things which are, and things which are yet to come. You might remember that chapter 1 of the book of Revelation is devoted to revealing the resurrected Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are devoted to revealing the church age, church history from about 63 AD all the way up to today. And chapter 4 onwards is devoted to revealing things that are to come after the church age. In Revelation 1.19, John is given these instructions. He's told, write the things which you have seen. He's seen the resurrected Jesus up to this point. And the things which are, that would be the church age, and the things which will take place after this the greek word there for that phrase after this is the word meta tauta meta tauta everybody say meta tauta meta tauta now you feel smart that's good meta tauta is a greek word whose entire purpose is to serve as a partitioner to divide definitively between things ideas and concepts and things like that and so when he says to john write down the things which will take place after this he's creating a firm division and i'm going to tell you why that is incredibly important god wants us to know there's a division between the things which are the church age and the things which will take place future events well just to emphasize that point chapter four of revelation begins with john doing just that firmly dividing it from everything that preceded it which was the church age john the apostle who's receiving this revelation writes this in the very first verse of chapter four it begins with the phrase after these things which is the greek word Meditata. Again, he says, after these things, I looked 
and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This verse is on your outline, and I want to encourage you to underline after these things, and then underline a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, that he had heard in chapter 1, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. You're going to want to underline, come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. And that word after this is guess which word again? Metatauta. Metatauta. You know, whenever the Bible repeats things in close proximity, it's because it wants us to pay special attention. So Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, both contain the phrase metatauta because he really wants us to understand there's a division being made. We are now going to look at things that are happening after this. After what? After John has gone up into heaven gone through a door, he is now going to witness everything that comes after this from a different perspective. Chapters 2 and 3 and 1, he has been on the earth level, seeing the resurrected Jesus, seeing the church age. He's now been invited to witness everything that is to come, that is metatauta, the church age, after the church age, from a different location. That location is heaven. God has invited him up into heaven and said, now from here, from this viewpoint, watch everything that happens next. That's huge. It's incredibly important. And you know, after appearing over 20 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, guess which word never appears again in the Revelation narrative? The word church. The word church. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the church is removed from the earth in the rapture. John goes on and he writes, immediately I was in the spirit. You might want to underline that. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set, and then you're going to want to underline in heaven. Let's us know where he is. And one sat on the throne. One sat on the throne. John's been called up off the earth by a voice from heaven that sounds like a trumpet that's going to be important. He's invited to enter through a door that's going to be important too. And he witnesses everything that comes next after the church age, metatauta the church age, from the geographical location of heaven. Well, when the church goes up, something else comes down. God's judgment and wrath come down upon the earth in the form of the seven-year tribulation. And this is chronicled in Revelation chapter 6 and continues all the way up to Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation chapter 6, we read about the beginning of the tribulation. Let me read it to you. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Jesus. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You know, right now you and I have the opportunity to relate to Jesus in grace and mercy. But that opportunity is not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. There'll come a day when those who reject Jesus will ultimately encounter him in wrath. The church goes up, Revelation 4.1, wrath comes down. Really begins Revelation 6.16. Well, after the seven-year tribulation, the raptured church returns with Jesus to rule on the earth for a thousand years in what's known as the millennial kingdom. And we see Jesus' second coming begin in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. 
John writes, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Speaking about the coming millennial kingdom. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I am so glad that I am going to be on Jesus' side when that goes down. When that goes down. I also think it's pretty awesome that Jesus basically has a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so let's continue and explore some more of what the Bible says about the rapture. Jesus himself says this in John's gospel, in your Bibles. He says this in John chapter 14. This is on your outlines. We're going to need to underline some things. He says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Underline that. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus understands that what he's telling his disciples and what he's about to tell them is so unbelievable that he has to take a moment to reassure them that he's not lying about this. He has to say, if it were not so, I would have told you. You can trust me on this. He goes on, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, then you're going to want to underline the rest of this, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Notice some really important things here. Jesus tells his disciple that part of the reason he's going to leave them at the end of his earthly ministry and what we'd call the ascension is to prepare a place for them. That's why he's going, to prepare a place for them. Then Jesus promises that he's going to come again, but for a very specific purpose. What's that purpose? Jesus says the purpose is to receive you to myself. That means the purpose is not for us to receive him to ourselves here on the earth. And the purpose is not yet for Jesus to come and rule on the earth for a thousand years. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about the rapture. So Jesus is going to come and get his disciples and all believers. And what is he going to do with them? He says that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is coming for all believers so that he can receive them and take them to where he is the place that he has prepared the place jesus calls my father's house are you seeing the differences between the rapture and the second coming the rapture jesus comes for his church the second coming jesus comes with his church you know the rapture is not even exclusive to the new testament in the book of isaiah the old testament prophet he writes this this is on your outlines too you might want to underline some things He says, come my people, so there's a call to God's people, enter your chambers, you'll want to underline that, it just means enter your rooms, and shut your doors, underline doors, just like in Revelation 4.1, behind you. Hide yourself, underline that, as it were, and then underline for a little moment. This is a temporary situation. And then underline until the indignation is past. 
The purpose of this hiding is to avoid what's called the indignation. It says, for behold, and then underline the rest here, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. People hear his voice, come my people, they go into their rooms. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house or many mansions, many rooms. Enter your chambers. You enter your chambers, your rooms through a door, then the door is closed behind you. You can't go back, that's good news. Then God's people are told to stay in their rooms for a little while until the indignation is passed, which is referring to the seven-year tribulation that comes upon the earth when God's wrath comes down. God's people are removed, they're tucked away in their rooms, and it's at that point that God's wrath is poured out on those who would not receive Jesus. The rapture of the church is followed by the seven-year tribulation. And Jesus would describe the tribulation like this in Matthew 24. He'll say, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. It's going to be worse than the flood, to put this in perspective. No, nor shall ever be. And there'll never be anything this bad. World War II, child's play. Child's play compared to this. And as we mentioned before, the tribulation includes events like the mark of the beast, which is described in Revelation 13, 17. It says, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or name of the beast or the number of his name. It's going to be a crazy, terrifying, and horrific time. That's the truth. But thank God for what we learned in Revelation 4.1. The church will not be here during the tribulation. The church will be raptured and will be with Jesus while all this is going down. Following the tribulation, there will be the second coming of Christ. Remember, the rapture is Jesus coming for his church. The second coming is Jesus coming with his church. Remember what Isaiah talked about, being tucked away for a little while while the indignation runs its course. Well, after the tribulation, Jesus will return to the earth with his church in an event called the second coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. He writes, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. With all his saints. Again, that event takes place in Revelation 19. But before Jesus can come back to the earth with his saints, he has to come for his saints. He has to come for us before he can come with us. He can't come with us right now because we're not there with him. Make sense? Make sense? So let me add one more section of Scripture to this point. Do you remember what happens to the Apostle John at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4? Let me, let me read it one more time. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. So in the flow of the Revelation narrative, John and the church are now up in heaven before the throne of God, before wrath comes down in Revelation 6.16 and the tribulation begins. That's where we are. In between those two points, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, this is on your outline, John writes this, describing what is going on in heaven with all the believers gathered around the throne of God. They are singing to Jesus, and who they are is very important. It says this, and they, 
You're going to want to underline they. Sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have, then you're going to want to underline, redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us, then you'll want to underline, kings and priests to our God. And then you'll want to underline, we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. Notice that they sing to Jesus because he has redeemed us to God by your blood. Is this Israel that's singing this? Is this angels? No, because they, we're told, are out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They are the church, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, saved by the blood of Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 is the only other place in the entire Bible where it uses the phrase kings and priests. And John uses it to describe what God has made every believer, what he's made his church into, kings and priests. And then what's the last line? And we, those who are in heaven before the throne, shall reign, future tense, yet to come, something that's going to happen after the church has been taken up into heaven where on the earth on the earth they're in heaven but they're going to come back to reign with jesus on the earth revelation 19 second coming of christ revelation 4 1 the church goes up the church is in heaven chapter 6 wrath comes down chapter 19 jesus comes back with his saints and it's at that time that the church begins to reign with jesus for a thousand years on the earth that's the big picture So what will the earth look like at the time the rapture takes place? Well, what will it look like? We can't look at all the signs, but we can look at some of them in the time we have. We're going to find that overall, the state of the world can be described as business as usual in a very unusual time. Business as usual in a very unusual time. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 17. This is on your outlines. This is the same message Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 24. It's a message called the Olivet Discourse. And we're going to begin in verse 28 of Luke 17. Jesus says, describing what it's going to be like, likewise as it was also in the days of Lot. What do you mean as in the days of Lot? Well, he tells us they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be. You're going to want to underline that. Even so will it be. It means it'll be just the same in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, in the day which Jesus is revealed to his disciples, his believers. Jesus is trying to make a very specific point by referring back to what happened to the city of Sodom. Jesus wants us to realize that life was going on as normal in this city from their perspective all the way up to the point it started raining fire and brimstone from heaven, raining down wrath on the city. Jesus wants us to understand that the people of Sodom weren't anticipating what was about to happen. They weren't expecting it. They're drinking, they're buying and selling, They're even planting and building because they have no idea that a cataclysmic event is in their near future. Jesus said it happened like that, like that. The big picture that Jesus is painting is that nothing too crazy was going on to tip off the people that wrath was about to come down. They weren't in the middle of an economic meltdown. They weren't in the middle of a war. Their city was very much in the middle of an ordinary day. This is the picture of how things will be on the day Jesus comes for his church. If you read what happens during the seven-year tribulation, 
It's not normal, okay? <laughs> you can read it. It's not normal. There's fire and brimstone raining from the sky. There's oceans turning to blood. There's all kinds of bad stuff. When that's going down, people are not buying and selling, going about life as normal, planting, harvesting. So Jesus is describing a time where it's unusual, but it seems very normal to everybody there, and they don't see it coming, and it happens like that. Do you remember how we explained in an earlier message in this series that the term last days applies to the time period that began on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, around 33 AD, and continues all the way up to today? The phrase the last days incorporates almost the last 2,000 years. And in this same Olivet Discourse, Jesus describes all the signs that will mark the last days. And then Jesus says this. He says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Birth pangs. He gives a very specific analogy. He compares all these signs to birth pangs. And if you've ever had a child or more than one child, you know the drill. Wife is nine months pregnant. She has her first contraction Husband freaks out. Sometimes the wife, oh my gosh, the baby is coming. The world is ending. Ah! And so you go to the hospital and you encounter some very jaded nurse who's been through this a thousand times. You know, she can't smoke in a hospital, but she's so jaded. You almost need to picture her smoking and just going like, she's like, you still got hours to go. You know, and she tells you that and you're like, but I, but this, this is so intense. And she says, oh, honey. It's going to get much more intense than that. I got zero sympathy all the time. I've done this five times. And they tell you to go home. They say, it's got to get much, much worse, and the contractions have got to get much closer together. Things are going to get more intense, and they're going to get closer together. When they get really close together, that's how you know something's about to be born. Jesus gives all these signs for the last days, and he says it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. He says you're going to have a contraction in history, maybe 70 A.D., 300 AD and everyone's going to go oh my gosh the baby is coming and he says it's not yet it's not yet it's that day it's that season but it's not yet things are going to get more intense and closer together so when you look at all the signs that Jesus shares in the Olivet Discourse that's what you're looking for they've been going on from around 33 AD but they're getting more intense and they're getting closer and closer together And the Apostle Paul gives this description of the last days to Timothy when he writes to him in 2 Timothy. I think this is on your outlines. He says this, describing how things are going to be unusual during a usual time. He says, but know this, that in the last days, you want to underline last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, you can underline that, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, just take a trip to the mall, unthankful, unholy, unloving, underline unforgiving, slanderers, and then underline without self-control, brutal, underline despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, and then underline lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, That would be the Laodicean church we talked about last week. A form of godliness, but denying its power. And then he says, and from such men turn away. Other translations, Paul instructs Timothy, have nothing to do with such men. So let's hit on a few things. The term perilous times actually means violent. It means violent. And I know we're not scientists, but but let me ask you this. All over the world, in general, to generalize, are societies getting more violent or less violent? Are are crime statistics going up 
or going down. Even here in Canada, who the heck had an alarm system 30 years ago? Seriously. Who had an alarm system 30 years ago? Do you know that almost every new house that is built now, even in Vancouver, has an alarm system? Almost every new house. Why? Because violence is increasing. It just is. It says people are going to be passionate about the importance of loving themselves. They're going to be passionate about the importance of loving themselves in the last days. You you know, in, in modern counseling, your greatest goal is to raise the person's self-esteem, their literal self-love. We, b- we believe in, in modern counseling te- techniques. That's really the key to everything. If you can elevate their view of themselves, their love of themselves, that's going to solve most of their problems. Paul says there's going to be a dramatic increase in self-love during this time. It's more radical than normal. You know, when you look at a group photo and you're in it, let me ask you, what makes it a good photo? How you look, right? Everybody else can be like, but if you're good, you're like, this is a winner. This is going on the wall. I love my family. Just, this is a great family photo of all of us. You, know, you don't look at anybody else. I'm always on my mind, you know? And Paul says, Paul says he says it's going to be much, much, much more intense. People are going to be narcissists. They're going to be obsessed with themselves. Just think how often we hear this phrase. You have to learn to love yourself first. Have to learn to love yourself first. You want another example? Selfies, right? Here's me. I can only assume that you're all interested in this. Here's me from another angle. Here's me again, you know. I'm at the Grand Canyon. I figured you didn't want to actually see the Grand Canyon. You'd rather just see my freaking head at the Grand Canyon, right? This epidemic of narcissism in our society. Paul goes on and he says, unforgiving. The word is actually espondos in the Greek, and it means irreconcilable. It means without truce. So Paul's saying that there's going to be a group of people that will characterize this last season of time, this last generation, and they're going to be described as irreconcilable, without truce. No matter what you do, no matter what you offer them, they are not going to be interested in negotiating. They're not going to be interested in peace. They're just going to keep coming. If you want to know what that looks like in our time, you need to go look at the way Iran views Israel. They are not interested in being friends with Israel under any circumstances. They are without truce. They are literally willing to all die if it means they get to destroy Israel. They are without truce. Irreconcilable. Paul says people are going to be without self-control. Do you know that addictions in our generation are unparalleled compared to any other time in all of history? One in six people in just North America is addicted to some type of mood-altering drug. I'm not talking about classic drugs or alcohol. I'm talking about addicted to a mood-altering drug. Have no idea how to function at all without their mood-altering drug. One in six people right now. And I know there's a legitimate need for some people, but there's not a legitimate need for one in six people. One in six. They're addicted to it. Paul says people are going to be despisers of good. Despisers of good. You know, you cannot go into a school in Canada and hand out Bibles. Can't go into a school and pray. You can go into a school and hand out condoms. 
and you can go into a school and hand out flyers about abortion. It's madness unless you understand that Jesus said, Paul said, these things are going to be the flow of values in these last days. This is where things are going. Don't be surprised when this happens. And Paul just says, you don't have anything to do with that. Don't have anything to do with that. Paul says, what Paul says points to everything Jesus said also, that it will be a time when things are, in reality, when you take a step back, very unusual, very strange, very odd. But everyone is going to think that it's just business as usual. Everyone's going to think the world is just going on. Everything's getting better. We're evolving into higher, more enlightened beings. And I know we've already read it twice, but let me read it to you one more time. Revelation 4, 1 and 2. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. You need to have that underlined. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John points out that in an instant he was in a new place. He was in heaven, and he was in a new body. He was in the Spirit, speaking to our new spiritual bodies. As I've said before, six packs for every guy. Fantastic. The rapture is going to happen instantly, and it's going to happen worldwide. So notice that what John's describing, he's not describing where we just like, hey, I'm floating away, you know, and we float through the roof. John says it's instant. Just disappear. You're in one place, then you're in another. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. I wish we had time to go into the word more, but the word mystery there, the idea of it is Paul saying, let me tell you something that has been a mystery, that was a mystery, but I'm now revealing it to you. When he says, let me tell you a mystery, he's saying, let me reveal something to you that up until this point has been a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep. Underline sleep. The word sleep there means die. He says, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Underline changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised incorruptible. That means imperishable. They'll never die again. And we shall be changed. Really get this. Paul says we shall not all sleep. He says we won't all die. But we shall all be changed. We will all be changed. So there will be people who won't die a physical death before this happens there will be a last generation on the earth when this specific event takes place that event will take place in the twinkling of an eye like a blink and the event will result in a change a transportation a door open in heaven come up here when jesus taught it again in the olivet discourse he he taught it like this in luke 17 jesus said i tell you in that night underline the word night there will be two men the word there just means people don't get hung up on the two men thing Two men, two people in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. So when this event happens, not everyone will be taken. See the two that are in bed? It's a picture of somebody who's married to an unbeliever. There'll be somebody left behind. 
Jesus taught this 2,000 years ago, and as recently as 600 years ago, the predominant wisdom on the earth was that the world was flat. You know, don't go too far because there'd be dragons, and then, you know, you just go down forever. But Jesus describes an event that is instantaneous. It's happening at one moment, but it's happening at different times of the day. Did you catch that? The implication is that Jesus taught something in line with a round-earth view almost 1,500 years before anybody else really had the idea. And long before his audience could even understand the implications of what he was saying, he described an event happening simultaneously while people are in bed at night, while women are grinding wheat, which they would only do early in the morning, and men working in a field, which they would do during the day. So it's a single instantaneous event that takes place around the world that encompasses night, early morning, and day. Very interesting. Now let's move on to what is perhaps the most famous text on the rapture in the entire Bible. Tur- turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First, Thess- First Thessalonians chapter 4. Say it five times fast. And we're going to be starting in verse 13 in just a minute. But let me tell you, Paul only spent three weeks in the town of Thessalonica when he started the church there. Only three weeks there. Can you imagine? He, he goes there and he gathers probably just a few people, as, as few as probably half a dozen people, to start a church. And he just pours into them. He teaches them for three weeks. And then he leaves. And that was pretty typical. And the church grows and explodes around the world. But Paul is three weeks. And and so Paul faces this dilemma. You're a pastor. You're planting a church with people who who may know nothing about it. You may have a few Jews who have some background in the Torah and the Old Testament. But in in everything about Jesus, these people probably knew nothing. So you have three weeks with them. And Paul has to face the issue of what is he going to teach them? What is the most important stuff that these guys need to know? They got to get this. You're going to teach them the gospel. But what else? I want to suggest to you that what Paul chooses to teach them is hugely important to us, hugely important. Because among the essentials, Paul decided to include the end times and the rapture. Paul left, and eventually years go by. The Thessalonians become restless and nervous and begin saying things like, "Um, shouldn't the rapture have happened by now? Shouldn't it have happened by now? Because the clock is ticking. Christians in their church are actually dying physical deaths, and they begin wondering, did, did we miss this? Did we miss this? Paul, you said it would happen like this, but it hasn't happened. Did we miss something? Paul writes to them specifically, specifically to address their concerns. He says this in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8, 13. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, underline ignorant, it means uninformed, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I love this. Paul, Paul tells him, he says, listen, when somebody dies who's a believer in your church, the way you grieve should not be the same as people who don't believe in Jesus. They grieve because they have no hope. We have hope. They're going to be with Jesus. We're going to see them again one day. They are in the presence of God. If they had the choice, they would not come back here. They'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm good, you know. I'm good. Got my new six-pack. I'm good. (laughs) Paul says, make sure that you don't grieve the same way. You're going to miss them, but don't grieve like you have no hope. 
It's very interesting to me that Paul specifically says he doesn't want them to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about the rapture and the end times. And when you say overall that an enormous percentage of the church, every Christian around the world, wouldn't you say that an enormous percentage of them could very accurately be described as being ignorant or uninformed about the end times and about these things? Paul says he didn't want that for the people in the church that he helped start. He says, I don't want that to be you. I don't want you to be ignorant. In verse 14, he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he's saying, if you can believe that, even so, he's saying, you can believe this, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who died before the rapture. Verse 15, he says, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. So Paul, he's name dropping God here for a reason. He's saying, I want you guys to know when all you theologians get together in 2,000 years and you say, is this maybe Paul just sharing his own opinion? Paul says, I want you to know this, what I'm telling you now, is by the word of the Lord. He's name dropping God. He's saying, this is not me. This is straight from God. You better recognize. That's what he's saying. He says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul realizes that what he is saying is so incredible that people are going to have a hard time believing it. And that's why he puts the disclaimer in there and name drops God, reminding us that what he's saying is from God. He even says, if you can believe that Jesus raised from the dead, if you can believe that he is alive today, then you can believe this. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes on to explain how all this is going to go down. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I heard a voice. With the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet, underline that, of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I'd love to get into that. We don't have time for the bunny trail, but it's awesome. Verse 17, then we who are alive, underline alive, and remain, underline remain, shall be, underline, caught up. Harpazo, rapturo, raptus. We shall be caught up together with them, with those who have died before this event. Where is this going to happen? In the clouds. To meet the who? The Lord where? In the air. Specifically, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul says, I know this is hard to believe. I know this is hard to believe, but this is from God. Trust me on this. You can take it to the bank. The Lord descends with a shout and a trumpet blast. We hear a voice saying, come up here. And immediately, immediately we meet the Lord. Both those who died before that moment and those who are alive in that last generation. Then we are caught up to meet him. Where? In the air. He receives us to himself. We're not going to meet Jesus on the earth. We're going to leave the earth and meet him in the sky, meet him in the clouds. And the idea is not that we're in the literal sky. The idea is that we're in the place the Bible calls heavenly realms, the heavenly places, the heavenlies. We've left our dimension. As John said, I was in the spirit. He says, the idea is that you are ascending, you're going somewhere higher, but you've changed. You've left this earth. You know, the sun isn't blocked out by like a billion bodies hovering in the sky. Like we're gone. There's no trace of us. From that moment on, we will be with Jesus forever. 
We're almost out of time. We're out of time. So I've got to wrap this up with Paul wrapping up his explanation of the rapture to the Thessalonians. Verse 18, he says, Therefore, underline this, comfort one another. Comfort one another with these words. What Paul has just taught them about the rapture and the end times is supposed to bring them comfort, not freak them out. And these guys, just like us, they know they're going to heaven when they die. They know that. So Paul isn't saying, I want to comfort you by telling you you're going to heaven. They're saying, tell us something we don't know. We know we're going to heaven. We're not worried about that. We're worried that we've missed the rapture. So what is the comfort of the rapture to the believer? Well, let me ask you this. If I said, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation where God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth, and most of you are going to die horrific deaths, but when it's all over, Jesus will come back for the few that are left. Are you comforted? Or are you comforted? I'd, I'd suggest no. If I said, great news, because you would say, well, I'd rather die now than uh, go through all that, actually. If I said, great news, there's a seven-year tribulation of death, doom, and destruction. Most of you are going to die horrific deaths. But halfway through that process, God's going to come for those of you who are left. Be comforted. Thanks. What if I said, Revelation 4, verse 1, church goes up before wrath comes down you will be with jesus christ in his presence in heaven before his throne while all this is going down would that be comforting i would be comforted jesus said this in closing he said therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect he's coming at an hour you do not expect we won't know the day we won't know the hour we will know the generation. We'll know the general time if we take God's word seriously. But most people won't even see it coming. Even though we know the season, we're not going to wake up and be like, huh, sun is blue today. Something seems a little amiss. It's not going to be like that. He says, even if we know the generation, we know the season, he's, he's saying, listen, it's going to be a day that's going to feel very normal. And then just like that, it's going to happen just like that being a follower of jesus means that you're living ready for the rapture whenever whenever it happens and if it happened right now the question is are, are, are you ready do you belong to jesus will you be the one left standing in the field or the one who is gone have you been converted have you been changed from one thing into something else not perfect but a change god's spirit is now inside of you have you been converted Will you be the one left in the bed or the one leaving? It's a big, big question. 